Let's ask the Lord to lead us this morning. Heavenly Father, we're grateful to be in your house this morning. And Lord, we rejoice in your word. We rejoice in the fellowship that we have together because you have redeemed for yourself people. You've called us out of darkness into light. You've translated us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of your son. And Father, because of that, you've made us new creatures. And so we delight to be with each other, our brothers and our sisters, who you have likewise redeemed. And it gives us great joy to be able to fellowship together, to worship you. Father, just a foretaste of what we will one day know as we stand in your presence, when our redemption will be complete. And I ask this morning, Father, that you would open our hearts to your word, that you will help us as we look at this very difficult passage, and that you will be honored and glorified in our midst as we preach, as we listen, as we pray, and as we sing, that you will be our help this morning. We ask these things in your name. Amen. Well, I would just say that modern churchmen take many, many different approaches to Scripture. One of those is to study Scripture topically. Um, And in so doing, when you take a topical approach to Scripture, you can skip over certain passages that don't make you feel necessarily comfortable. Um, And this was a, a challenging passage to study, as will... Um, the sixth trumpet as we look at this. And, you know, we made the commitment 10 years ago when Word of Grace was started that we would be faithful to exegetical teaching of Scripture, line upon line, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. And in doing so, um, we are claiming the promise of God that he will be faithful as we are faithful to his word. Amen. And one of the examples of that is, as we started our passage, our study in the book of Revelation, I believe what the Lord Jesus said, blessed, verse three of chapter one, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written for the time is near. If we take the Lord Jesus at his word, then even what we're about to look at this morning, though it may be difficult, it may be hard, it may be uncomfortable for us. Scripture promises that it will be a blessing. And so at the onset, as we look at this, I want you to be looking for the blessing within the text that we're about to see. Um, Our last two sessions, as we dealt with the first four trumpets Um, These are trumpets of judgment. They are progressive in nature. And they, if if you recall, they impact the source or the sustenance of life, of flourishing. For example, the first trumpet impacted a third of the earth, the trees, and the green grass. The second trumpet, the sea became blood. A third of the living creatures and ships destroyed. The third trumpet talked about the rivers and the springs becoming poisoned. The fourth trumpet that we looked at last time was that of the heavenly bodies, the sun, the moon, the stars being darkened. And we talked about the fact that all of these judgments take us back. And for the student of the Old Testament, for those of 
for those uh, that would un- unhitch from the Old Testament, they would miss out on the illusion that John is making back to the Old Testament because these are these are directly correlated to the judgments that God brought against Pharaoh and Egypt. And there's a point to that, very clear point. And the clear point is this, is that God is sovereign over the gods, little g, of this world, over idols, over kingdoms. He's sovereign over kings. There was not a man walking the face of the earth in the world's eyes that is more powerful than Pharaoh in his day, in the height of his reign. And what does scripture tell us about Pharaoh? And why he existed. Romans 9 verse 17. For the scripture says to Pharaoh for this purpose. Have I raised you up. That I might show my power in you. And that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whom he will. On whoever. Excuse me. On whomever he wills. And he hardens whomever he wills. God is sovereign. That is the point of the allusion back to the judgment on Pharaoh in Egypt. And remember, these are symbolic in nature, not that they're any less real, but they are symbolic and spiritual in nature, certainly have physical outworkings in terms of what that judgment looks like. But we need to understand that these are um, pointing to a much greater purpose for the Illusion that we looked at last time, the sun, the moon, and the stars being darkened. We're talking about a darkness in a, in a form of judgment. We, we touched on it this morning. We are living in a time, and this is, this is uh, certainly not new to our day, but we have access to the scriptures and the word of God and tools with which to study it. And how great is the darkness that we live in because of the ignorance of scripture? Um, that's an indictment, by the way. It's both a blessing and an indictment. But we see that God is sovereign over the God's little g of this world. Secondly, the trumpets serve as a gracious clarion call to warn those who are yet unconverted. That is the gathering remnant. Jesus, when he pulls his disciples aside and they ask him, what will be the sign of the end of, of all things in his return? He tells them in Matthew chapter 24, um, talking about the beginning of birth pains, wars, verse 6, and rumors of wars. When you see these things, see that you are not alarmed, for this must take place. But the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All of these are but the beginning of birth pains. And Jesus rightly reminds us that these are pictures of the coming judgment. They are but small tokens of judgment that we will see and experience in this life now that are tragedy, that are horrific to see. But these are the beginning of birth pains. These are not final judgment, just pictures of it. And in those small pictures and tokens of judgment is a call for men everywhere to repent. This is the graciousness of God. And he says in verse nine of Matthew 24, they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another 
and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And notice the point of it all. Verse 14, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. In the middle of all of the craziness, all of the tragedy, all of the wars and rumors of wars and the political wranglings, the nation rising up, nations falling down, There's one thing that is consistent throughout every one of those activities, and that is that God is gathering his remnant. He is is accomplishing his redemptive purpose and gathering his church. He's using all of these things to sanctify and purify his bride, which he will come to take for himself. Thirdly, these partial judgments reveal the darkness of men's hearts. And solidify the wickedness of those who will never repent. Revelation chapter 9 verse 20, which we'll look at Lord willing next week. After we see the 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 announcement of the sixth trumpet. We're looking at the fifth one today. But following the sixth trumpet, which is worse than the fifth. It says this in verse 20. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues. Listen did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders, of their sorceries, of their sexual immorality or their thefts. What is scripture telling us here? For the unregenerate, the unbelieving, The unrepentant judgment reveals them to be what they are. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we find uh, a reminder that there are divisions in the church. And Paul says they're necessary. Why? You say, well, division is not good. No, it's not good, but it accomplishes something. It shows the professor from the possessor. That's why church discipline exists, because as God reveals through his spirit, those who are sitting amongst us that are pretenders and they are revealed because of their bad behavior and their lack of repentance, they're to be put out. So that's harsh. Judgment must begin at the house of God, the scripture says, but they did not repent. They did not obey the gospel. And as we end chapter 8, John sees or hears this eagle flying directly overhead. And remember, this is a picture of swift and sudden destruction and judgment. And it says this, we see the triple woe, 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 woe to those who dwell on the earth. At the blasts of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow, we have a triple pronouncement of woe. This is prophetic language from the Old Testament that, again, the early church, the church of the first century would have recognized. Hosea 7, 13 says, woe to them, for they have strayed from me. Destruction to them, for they have rebelled against me. I would redeem me or redeem them, but they speak lies against me. 
R.C. Sproul on his preaching in Luke chapter 11, which is the pronouncement of the Lord Jesus's woes, says this, Jesus made use of an oracular formula in which a prophet of God pronounces an oracle of doom, prefaced by the word woe. Anytime you see the word woe in sacred scripture, you need to take notice because this is the strongest verbal form of judgment and warning that God gives by his prophets, unquote. So we'll look at the first woe this morning. There are two points that I want to look at this morning in our study, and that is verses one through five. We see that hell is restrained. And then verses six through 11, we see that hell is militant. So first of all, the first trumpet. Verse one, the fifth angel blew his trumpet and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. We have the warning of the fifth angel's trumpet here. This is listed as the first woe or the great calamity of the three woes at the end of chapter eight. I want to commend something to you at the onset for your library if you don't have it. Um, it's called the uh, the Christian in Complete Armor. It's written by William Gurnall, who is a Puritan writer. If you've not heard of him, I don't think I can tell you or recommend to you a better book or writing. Um, it does a phenomenal summary of scripture on spiritual warfare. Uh, incredibly practical. Um, and in, if for those of you that don't like to invest money in the Puritans. I can't imagine that I'm talking to anybody in this church, but it's free. You can go online and get a PDF of it. A little harder to read in that format, but um, is also searchable. But um, I wanted to commend that to you because I'll quote from it frequently over the next several chapters. Used it as a Bible study um, Sunday school teaching course um, many years back and was immensely blessed by it but eminently practical and probably the best writing that I know of on spiritual warfare. Um, not a topic that we like to talk about. There are many who think that mm, doesn't really apply to us now. Those days are gone. That's for another time, another place. It's not what scripture teaches though. So John sees here a star and notice that it, the star is fallen and it brings up a very pertinent question. What is a star? First thing that you would ask as you, as you look at this, but John helps us here. What does he tell us about the star? What's the first thing that he tells us? It's a he, right? Saw a star falling from heaven to earth, and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. John says the star is a he, and we have here for our reading an expansion of the introduction of our archenemy, who is a main character in the book of Revelation. But I want you to notice something. We've already touched on this. I'll remind you, the seven churches were already familiar with Satan. They were already very intimately familiar with Satan and what he was doing. And it's important to note that we should be as well. 
I want to say at the onset that there are those who look for a demon under every rock and can take this teaching of scripture and be very out of balance with it. That's one side of the ditch. The other side of the ditch is Satan's not going to bother me. I've got nothing to worry about. And right down the middle is where we need to be thinking because he is a very real foe. He is personally and intimately interested in you and your demise. And while that might not give us a warm, fuzzy feeling this morning, it's important that you know that. He was intimately interested in the church of the first century. And John says this, let me just give you a quick reminder. Revelation 2, 9, writing to the church in Smyrna. I know this is Lord Jesus speaking to Smyrna. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are what? Of the synagogue of who? Satan. Pergamum, Revelation 2.13. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name and you did not deny my faith even the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. I think the first century church understood spiritual warfare. Yes. Revelation 2.24, Thyatira. To the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, what teaching is that? He goes on to say, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan. To you, I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Revelation 3, 9, to the church in Philadelphia, behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. If you look over to Revelation chapter 12, it'll be a little bit before we get there. But in Revelation 12, we get another picture of this. In verse 7, John says, now war arose in heaven. And, and by the way, just this is just another reminder. We're not looking at sequential events here necessarily as we are different snapshots of the same thing. <clears throat> and when we see that, it takes some of the confusion out of this and it helps us to understand that we're, we're getting expounded teaching on the same picture. In Revelation chapter 12, verse 7, now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. When, when did this happen? According to scripture, when do we, is that yet to come? Is there a great war in heaven yet to come? No. So this is a picture of what's already transpired. He says, now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. Who's the dragon? And the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down. That ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. Where was he thrown down? He was thrown down to earth and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in, in heaven saying, now the salvation and power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down. He accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb 
by the word of their testimony, and they love not their lives, even unto death. Now, therefore, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell on earth. Here it is again. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you. Notice this, in great wrath, because he knows time is short. Luke chapter 10, Jesus talking to his disciples. You remember he sends them out. 72 of them returned with joy in Luke 10, 17, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And listen to what Jesus said. I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Remember that verse. And then one more to help us understand what we're talking about here in verse one of chapter nine. Isaiah 14, verse 12. How are you fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn? How are you cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low? You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. Above the stars of God, I will set my throne on high, and I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you were brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. So in summary, Satan has been cast out of the kingdom of God. He has fallen from grace. He is angry because he has been put down and his heavenly coup has failed. He has been deposed to the earth and he has set up his kingdom here. He is doing everything here that he could not do there. He has a throne here to exercise dominion and authority. He has an army. He has a church. He has his own doctrine. He has his own gospel. He has his own subjects of the kingdom, slaves, worshipers. He has an agenda, powerful tools at his disposal, and an urgency to carry out his agenda. And as he knows his time is short, he has a sense of urgency. He is at war with his enemy, and his enemy is anyone that threatens his kingdom. And so the scripture warns us here, woe to those who dwell on the earth. Remember, the earth dwellers are those whose residence, whose citizenship belongs here. They are the subjects, the primary focus, if you will, of the fifth trumpet. Notice he was given to the, the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He was given a key. The key here is a picture of authority. He has, for a short time, a period um, known to the Lord Jesus, authority to exercise his rule and dominion in this world. What is meant by the, the bottomless pit? It, in the Greek, it means the shaft of the abyss. Say, well, where is this? Well, I can't see it, so I can't tell you. But that doesn't mean it's any less real. But notice, this is a spiritual reality. 
When we talk about physical versus spiritual, we tend to think, well, if it's spiritual, is it really real? Well, just because it's spiritual does not mean it's any less real than what we see right in front of our faces. Second Peter 2, 4 says this, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. Um, Barnes commenting on this passage, I think, is, is pretty solid here. He says this, and to him was given the key of the bottomless pit of the underworld, considered particularly the abode of the wicked. This is represented often as a dark prison house, enclosed with walls and accessible by gates or doors. Now notice, not talking about a physical prison. These gates or doors are, are fastened so that none of the inmates can come out, and the key is in the hand of the keeper or the guardian. In Revelation 1.18, it is said that the keys of the world, of this world, are in the hand of the Savior. Here it is said that for a time and for a temporary purpose, they are committed to another. The word pit, or the Greek word freear, denotes properly a well or a pit for water dug in the earth. And then any pit, cave, or abyss. The reference here is doubtless to the netherworld considered to be the abode of the wicked dead the prison house of the guilty. The word bottomless, abusos in the Greek, where we get our word abyss means properly without any bottom. It would be applied properly to the ocean or to any deep or dark valley or to any obscure place whose depth was unknown. Here it refers to Hades, the region of the dead, the abode of wicked spirits as a deep, dark place whose bottom was unknown. In Luke chapter 8, Verse 27, Jesus, who is stepping out of the boat, confronts a man from the city who had demons. And the scripture says, for a long time, he had worn no clothes and he had not lived in a house, but among the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, what have you to do with me, Jesus, a son of the most high God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he, Jesus, had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles. But he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. And Jesus then asked him, what is your name? And he said, Legion. For many demons had entered him. And listen to this. And they begged him not to command them to depart where? Into the abyss. So we may not know specifically, geographically, where this location is, but rest assured, Satan and his angels know exactly where this place is because they were terrified that the Lord Jesus would command them to go there. In Revelation, we see one, two, three, four, five different occasions where the bottomless pit is mentioned, Revelation 9, 2, which we just read. Revelation 9-11, they have a king over them, the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek, he is called Apollyon. Revelation eleven seven, and when they had finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. The beast that you saw, Revelation seventeen eight, and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit 
and go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth, listen to this, and the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. And then Revelation 20, the famous passage in the book of Revelation, verse 1, I saw an angel coming down from heaven holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. What scripture is opening up for us, and remember the point of the book of Revelation, is to change our perspective. Things are not what they seem to be. Things are not what they appear to be. The book of Revelation helps us to see the reality of what is truly transpiring from heaven's perspective. It takes us all the way back to Revelation chapter 4 in the throne room. We're to see things, and that's that's the the blessing to the church is causing us to see the truth of God's word, what's really happening from his perspective. Verse two, he opened the shaft of the pot of the bottomless pit and from the shaft rose uh, smoke like the smoke of a great furnace. The sun and the air were darkened with smoke from the shaft. It sounds a lot like the darkness that we see in the last trumpet, doesn't it? So here is the king, if you will, of the bottomless pit. He is given authority to open the door and he opens the door and lets loose the evil inhabitants of this bottomless pit. And notice the effect of the loosing. What is the effect of the loosing of the inhabitants of the bottomless pit? Like a chimney. The picture here is, is, is a picture of a chimney when the smoke is let out. This black smoke that's so great that it blinds. It's darkness. Revelation chapter 9, verse 17 and 18, John records for us, and this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode them. They were breastplates, the color of fire and of sapphire and of sulfur. The heads of the horses were like lion's heads and fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. By these last three plagues, a third of mankind was killed in the fire and the smoke and the sulfur coming by the fire, smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. As you can see from Revelation 9, 17, this picture grows darker, if you will. And it's progressive progression of judgment. So what do we make of the smoke? Well, the smoke darkens that which it covers. The smoke and the sulfur proceed from their mouths. What is this talking about? What does Satan use to darken those who are deceived? Well, 1 Timothy chapter 4, Paul writing to Timothy says this, now the Spirit expressly says, that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Although the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from food that God created to be received with with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth, for everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and by prayer. 
So how, this is a practical question for you to mull over, to think about, how do we, the saints of God, perceive, understand, identify doctrines of demons? How do we do it? Well, this ties perfectly to our Bible study this morning because scripture is our supreme authority to define these things. Now, we're very cautious around the edges sometimes because we don't want to accuse somebody of propagating a doctrine of demons. But he gives us two examples. And by the way, Jesse took us through Acts chapter 15 this morning, which gave us another example. There were some that rose from Judea who made the claim that unless you as a man were circumcised, you could not be saved. Now, what does scripture say to that? It's by faith. Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him as righteousness. And Paul makes the point that his belief was prior to what? Circumcision. Exactly. So that his uh, righteousness would be reckoned according to faith and not of works. So we have a perfect example in Acts chapter 15 of a doctrine of demons. Say, well, are we being harsh to our brothers who bring up such a doctrine? Well, let's just think about this for a second. He gives two examples to Timothy here in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. There is the forbidding of marriage, okay? That's one doctrine or teaching that he calls a doctrine of demons. And secondly, that there is a teaching or preaching that there must be an abstinence of certain foods. Okay? Now, what is he doing? He's, he's taking these teachings, and teachings are authoritative binding upon the conscience of the church. Okay? So false teachers are looking to bring your conscience under subjection or binding. There are some things that are important for us to see in, in, under, in order to understand how to identify a demonic doctrine or teaching. I told you a few minutes ago, Satan has his own gospel. He has his own teaching. And the, the reoccurring thread for all of Satan's teachings Broadly speaking, they're deceptive. Well, what is, how do we define what is deceptive and what is true? We're, we're living in a point in time where you cannot believe anything you hear. What I would ask you right now, I bet I get six different answers. What news channel, what news source is trustworthy that you can take to the bank and know they're not lying to you? Yeah. Seriously, there's, there is no consensus or agreement. Everybody has their favorites, but are they all trustworthy? We're, we're stepping into the realm of AI where AI is writing papers for people now. It's, it's doing some of our work for us. And it, it is, they're, they're moving to the point where it will determine what you find in a search engine when you do a search. It is setting itself up as the arbiter of all truth. So how do we know what is deceptive and what is reality? Again, go back to our Bible study. Scripture is supreme. 
But broadly speaking, Satan in doctrines of demons teaches anything that deceives, that leads astray. But notice that, that he does a couple of things here. He, he teaches that which is contrary to God's sovereign creation. Okay? Who ordained marriage? It is an institute, a creation ordinance, we call it, that God ordained. And what is this doctrine of demon teaching? You are more spiritual if you abstain from marriage. Now, not to call any names, but there are churches, quote unquote, that hold this out today and say for you to be a man called of God, or even a woman called of God, you must separate yourself from the institution of marriage. When God called marriage, good. There's also the, the forbidding of, of food. If you're to be more spiritual, you can't eat this kind of food. Fill in the blank. Notice that it is contrary to what God has called good. So what is happening with doctrines of demons? Doctrines of demons redefine what is good and what is evil? Did God really say, Eve, that you shouldn't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Did he really say that? Because after all, you do, and you're going to have knowledge just like him. So that's not bad. Doctrines of demons will always try to redefine what is good. And notice that it is always lawlessness, contrary to the, declare, the, the, the declared law of God. God has, has established what is good and what is right, what is just, what is righteous. The standard, by the way, in every such measurement is in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay? So doctrines of demons will also reject and try to reestablish that standard of good, and they do so by bringing about another gospel. If you as a man will be um, circumcised, you're then made acceptable and righteous. That's another gospel. And that's how we identify a doctrine of, de of demons. What is the heart of Satan's message? I will, we read it in Isaiah 14, I will ascend to the most high, the heartbeat of every false religion outside of the, the, the work, the saving work of the Lord Jesus Christ is I will get to God on my own terms. That is religion. Satan has his own gospel and, and without fail, regardless of what, what spectrum you fall on in the religious category of spectrums, they all have the same thing in common. Amen. What do I do to make myself acceptable to God? I'll do it. I'll get there on my own terms. It's human pride. And so if it rebels against God's word, even, even in its undertone, I mean, the people in Acts 15, when, when they looked at the, the issue of circumcision, that sounded good. If you're, an, uh, if, if you're an, uh, an Israelite or a Jew, you'd heard that all your life, hadn't you? He takes elements of truth and twists them and warps them. So Paul is warning Timothy to be careful. We must be careful too, but there are hints. These doctrines of demons 
always come from the same source. And they are rebellious in nature and characteristic. And they want to get to God on their own terms. And they must be rejected and rooted out. By the way, we must call them what they are. We really need to stop worrying about being nice. Observations on verses three and four. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth and they were given power like the power of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. Now this takes us right back to Exodus chapter 10. When Moses and Aaron go to Pharaoh and they tell him, thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, how long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let my people go, behold, tomorrow I will bring locusts into your country and they shall cover the face of the land so that no one can see the land and they shall eat what is left to you after the hail and they shall eat every tree of yours that grows in the field and they shall fill your houses and the houses of all your servants and of all the Egyptians as neither your fathers nor your grandfathers have seen in the day they came on this earth to this day. And Moses turned and went out from Pharaoh. The, the locusts here pictured are demonic hosts. And this is a, this is a very descriptive image of them. Joel chapter two, we talk about a frightening passage of scripture. Turn there with me if you would. John is, is hearkening right back to this passage as we read what we're, we're reading in, in Revelation chapter nine. In Joel chapter two, verse one, listen to how this starts. Blow a trumpet in Zion. Why are trumpets blown? Yeah. And what else? Warn, right? Blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on the holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble for the day of the Lord is coming. It is near a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Like blackness, there is spread upon the mountains a great and powerful people. Their like has never been seen before, nor will be again after them through the years of all the generations. Fire devours them, devours before them, and behind them a flame burns. Listen to this description. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, but behind them a desolate wilderness, and nothing escapes them. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses. Sound familiar? And like war horses, they run. As with the rumbling of chariots, they leap on the tops of the mountains, like the crackling of a flame of fire devouring the stubble. Like warriors, they charge. Like soldiers, they scale the wall. They march each on his way. They do not swerve from their paths. They do not jostle one another. Each marches in his path. They burst through the weapons and are not halted. They leap upon the city, they run upon the walls, they climb up into the houses, they enter through the windows like a thief, the earthquakes before them, the heavens tremble, the sun and the moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw, they're shining. Are we talking about locusts here? Is that what we're talking about? No, this is a picture of something 
far more grievous. They're given power like scorpions. And I want you to notice they are given power. In Luke chapter 10, we read that passage. Jesus said, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions. And over all the power of the enemy, nothing shall hurt you. Their demonic power is to inflict pain and suffering on their subjects. But with this trumpet, they are directed to hold back their life-taking capability. You see that? There's a restraint here given. They are told not to hurt that which is green or living or those who have the seal of God in their foreheads. What is that? What is that? God is specifically restraining the hand of Satan against who? His people. And what is the mark of his people? The Holy Spirit indwelling us. You remember the account of Job? God says to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? What a testimony. And Job says, Lord, I can't touch him because you put a hedge about him. And God removes that hedge and allows Satan to do his worst for the sanctification of Job. But it brings up a pertinent question. What is the authority or power that Satan has over the saints? You've heard it put this way. Can can Christians be demon-possessed? Well, opinions vary, but what does Scripture say? 1 John 5.18, we know that everyone who has been born of God, what what does it mean to be born of God? means to be born again, to be born from above, to be born of the Spirit. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who has been born of God protects him. Listen, even or, or and the evil one does not touch him. Now, there are, I think, Scripture shows us degrees of harm that Satan can afflict. And we have an example of, of Job. What was out of touch for Satan in regard to Job? What could he not do? His life. Okay. But even beyond that, his spiritual life. Job is untouchable. When we looked at the writing to the early churches, seven churches, what did we find? We find that Some of them, like Antipas, had been martyred. Who do you think was at the bottom of that? Satan had a hand in the martyrdom of saints? Yes, he does. So how can this be true to say that they can't be harmed? Because what what he's talking about here is spiritual harm. The greatest power that Satan has in regard to harming someone is their spiritual demise. And in that case, we're out of his touch. We're out of his grasp. John chapter 10, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give unto them partial life. Now, what kind of life? Eternal. I give unto them eternal life and they will never perish. What does that mean that that they will never die? 
What is he talking about? The life that Jesus gives his sheep is eternal in nature. It doesn't mean that we will not experience pain, that we will not experience tribulation, we will not experience persecution, and we may even experience martyrdom. But guess what? In all of that, the scripture says we are more than conquerors. We're outside of the reach of Satan. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. You think he was talking about Satan there? You think that could have been in view? What did he tell what did he tell Peter? Simon, Satan has desire to what? Sift you. Like wheat. Satan's intent and design for Peter was his worst. He wanted Peter's destruction. What Satan means for evil, God means for good. So what do we make of verse five? They were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. None of anybody here ever been bit by a scorpion. Scorpion stings are incredibly painful, but one thing they're not typically is fatal. But man, they hurt. I mean, they've been stung by a bee. Does it hurt? Well, scorpion bite or sting is worse than a bee. But unless you're allergic to a bee, you're not going to die from it. But it'll hurt. That's the picture here. There is a restraint that is put on Satan. And we have scripture calls that a five-month period. Now, some commentators would make the argument that this is typical of, of a normal, typical dry season when, um, when locusts would, would do their thing. But I think the picture here um, is that this judgment is progressive and limited in scope and nature. And, and we'll see that as we move to the sixth trumpet. It gets worse. But this is a judgment on the earth dwellers. Second point, we have the, the, the fifth trumpet. Hell is militant. This gives us a picture into the motives the agenda, if you will, of those that are released from the bottomless pit. Verse six, and in those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. The net result of demonic oppression leaves the recipients desiring the freedom that they believe death will bring them. Not knowing the second state will be far worse than the first but they are looking for relief from the torment, not deliverance, by the way, from Christ. There's a difference here. When Jesus delivered somebody from demonic possession and oppression, without fail, he saved them. This picture that we're seeing here is just, this hurts. I want to be free from this pain, so kill me. This is not a crying out to God in repentance and asking for deliverance from spiritual wickedness and bondage. Look at verse seven. It says, in in appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. Sounds just like Joel um, chapter two that we just read. 
And on their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces, their hair like women's hair, and their teeth like lion's teeth. Notice the use of the word like. We constantly see the word like. So how do you describe in nature and character that which is spiritual? How do you do it? So again, John is using um, simile or or pictures to describe the nature of what we're dealing with. We have a description here that gives us the idea of the attributes of these spiritual beings, these demons. He said they're like horses prepared for battle. Well, the imagery is clear in that regard, isn't it? Horses were the cutting edge technology of military conquest, were they not? What did God tell Israel regarding horses? You're not to rely on horses. I will fight for you. But Egypt had horses and had them aplenty. When you were to identify what is powerful from a military standpoint, you look at horses. And these horses are not just ordinary horses. These are not horses hanging out in the pasture. What are these horses? Chariots. Chariots. They're arrayed for battle. And with this picture, you hear the clamor of war. They're ready to go. They're chomping at the bit. They're ready to sound the charge. It says they have crowns of gold. What is the picture there? Of authority, of stature, of rank, of organization. Satan and all of his hosts are not just running around willy-nilly without purpose and plan. They have wisdom. Notice the appearance of, of human faces. We looked back in Revelation chapter 4, verse 7, describing the picture of the angels that minister in the presence of God, the cherubim. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man. What was that? What was that imagery to show us? Are these demons brute beasts that have no knowledge, no wisdom? No. They're cunning. They're incredibly deceptive. And the scripture says he is the one that deceives the whole world. How smart is he? The picture of the human face here is a picture of wisdom. The image of God, if you will. Women's hair, what do you make of that? It was interesting. Um, A lot of different commenters differ on this picture of women's hair. But in scripture, what what does the hair of a woman portray to us? Glory, beauty, covering. Excuse me. Or is, is John pointing or painting the picture of a, of a feminine, a femininity here? No, what is, what is he drawing for us? What is the picture here? They have long hair. Well, think, think about this for a second. Satan disguises himself as what? An angel of light. For those who are seduced by demons, they don't go into it thinking that they're going to damn themselves to hell. They don't. They're looking for a little bit of insight, information. 
By the way, the explosion of the occult in our day and age is, is no surprise. But behind all of that, when, when God says he forbade Israel from going to witches or, if you will, fortune tellers, why? Because the just are to live by what? Faith. He says when he confronted, when, when Samuel confronted Saul for his sin, when he went to the witch in Endor, rebellion is what? As the sin of witchcraft. The essence, the essence of what, what we're seeing here is rebellion. Okay? But to be drawn in, there has to be something of beauty. And, and Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 that Satan with his false apostles, deceitful workers, distinguish themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, or even Satan disguises himself, what? As an angel of light. For people to get sucked into the deception, there has to be a lowering of the guard, right? So there's a, a picture here. And I think what John is painting for us is, is there's a deception here. Things are not what they seem to be. They have the teeth of lion's teeth. Well, what would you do with those? We think about the teeth of we think about lion's teeth. What what's the picture there? Power. Yeah, I mean, First Peter five eight. Be sober minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls like a roaring lion, lion seeking whom he may nip at the heels of. No. So the imagery is very vivid here. What do they do with these lion's teeth? They're intended to devour, to destroy. In verse 9 and 10, they had breastplates like breastplates of iron. The noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails and stings like scorpions, and the power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. Here again is a further description of their militaristic agenda. They're not here to hang out. They're not here to kill time. They have one objective, and that is to stand ready to destroy, to inflict pain and suffering. That is the picture that scripture is painting for us. There is a picture of urgency here. And if the enemy has urgency, maybe we should take this seriously. Verse 11. They have a king over them. The angel of the bottomless pit, his name in Hebrew is Abaddon. And what does it mean? It means destroyer, destroying angel. And in the Greek, he is called Apollyon. What does it mean? The destroying one or destroyer. What is John saying? In whatever language we identify or name the enemy, he's the same enemy. And he has one goal, and that is to destroy. He is the same in any language. He is a destroyer. He is an accuser of the brethren. And we're warned here about, about Satan and his legions to have an understanding of his character, his nature, his schemes. But most importantly, the fact that he is a defeated foe. William Gurnall says this. He says, to the saints, and this is going to have a little bit old uh, English language, Little, little puritanical language, if you will, but bear with me. To the saints, be not dismayed at this report, which the scripture makes of Satan's power. 
Let them fear him who fear not God. But are these mountains of power and pride before thee, O Christian, who serves a God that can make a worm thrash a mountain? The greatest hurt he can do to you is by nourishing this false fear of him in your bosom. Think about that. The greatest hurt he can do thee is by nourishing this false fear of him in my bosom. It is observed, Bernard saith, of some beast in the forest, that though they are too hard for the lion to fight, yet they tremble when he roars. Thus the Christian, when he comes to the pinch, indeed, is able through Christ to trample Satan under his feet, yet before the conflict stands trembling at the thought of him. Labor, therefore, to get a right understanding of Satan's power, and then this lion will not appear so fierce as you paint him in your melancholy fancy. Three considerations will relieve you when at any time you are beset with the fears of his power. Consider, it is a derived power. He hath not in himself, but by patent from another, and that no other but God. All powers are of him, whether on earth or in hell. This truth subscribed in faith will first secure thee, Christian, that Satan's power shall never hurt thee. Would thy father give him a sword to mischief thee, his child? I have created the smith, saith God, that bloweth the coals. I have created the waster to destroy, and therefore he assures them that no weapon formed against them shall prosper. If God provides his enemy arms, they shall, I warrant you, be such as will do them little service. When Pilate thought to scare Christ with what he could do towards the saving or taking of his life, he replies that he could do nothing, what, except it were given him from above. And as if he said, do your worst, I know who sealed your commission. This consider would meeken and quiet the soul when troubled by Satan within or his instruments without. It is Satan who buffets, man who persecutes me, but it is God who gives them both power. O Christian, look not on the jailer that whips thee. Maybe he is cruel, but read the warrant. See who wrote that, and at the bottom, you shall find your father's hand. That's hard stuff to process, but it's biblical. God is sovereign over the work of the enemy. John Blanchard wrote an excellent article in Table Talk, and this is how he sums it up. He said, even this whirlwind overview of the subject of Satan and his demons is inevitably sobering. But when viewed through the lens of scripture, we can be assured of two things. Firstly, neither the devil nor his demons are independent, omnipotent, omniscient, or omnipresent. Their power and influence in time and extent is limited by the permissive will of God, who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Secondly, Jesus made it clear that their ultimate fate is to be cast into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. So as we close this morning, what is the application? We're back to Revelation chapter 1, verse 3. What is the blessing here? This is a dark picture as we see it unfold. Well, as I said, Revelation is about adjusting our perspective. We're in spiritual warfare. We are. We can pretend that we're not. 
And that's uh, what I call the ostrich approach, right? Bury our head in the sand while the rest of our, our body is exposed to danger. And many times we as Christians take that approach. But what does spiritual warfare look like? I want you to see something. Colossians 1, 9, 9 through 14. I'm going to read just for verse 13 and 14. It says, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. I want you to understand something. Gospel work is warfare. Why is it hard to preach or to teach or to share the gospel? You ever thought about that? It's just words. Why is it hard sometimes? Well, it's war. Why is it war? I mean, we don't want anybody's hurt or harm, do we? When we engage in gospel work, we are engaging in a rescue operation. I just read to you, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred into his, us into his kingdom, into the kingdom of his beloved son. When a sinner is converted from the kingdom of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of Jesus, what is happening there? There's a rescue operation happening. You are stealing a member of Satan's kingdom to bring him in to the kingdom of Christ. How do you think Satan feels about that? You think he's cool with that? No. Satan does not take kindly to the rescuing of his subjects from his kingdom any more than Pharaoh willingly let Israel go. Why didn't Pharaoh want Israel to go? Because they were his slaves. He prospered on their backs. He will fight with everything he has, and he brings that warfare to us, the church. How does he do that? Well, primarily through false doctrine and false teaching. He tempts us to sin. Now, I'm not talking about saying the devil made me do it. That's not what I'm saying. But Satan tempts us. How does he do it, brother? It talks about it in James. Every man is tempted when he is what? Gone away by his own desire. Yes. But who does the tempting? Satan takes an active role in tempting. If the church can be riddled with sin and scandal, what happens to the teaching and the preaching of the gospel? The objective is always with Satan to stop the gospel. That's the objective. So he does it in numerous different ways in the church. Create controversy in the church. We may have a disagreement of doctrine. Must I be circumcised or not? That's what doctrines of demons do. They steal away the gospel. He uses scare tactics. It can be frightening when we think about the ferocity of our enemy. There's a threat of pain and physical harm and death when we think about what Satan does. That was very real for Job. Look at his methods. His methods are ruthless. What was off limits when he attacked Job? But what wasn't? What about his family? You think Satan doesn't have an interest in your children? If you as a man, as a woman of God, purpose 
to lead your families and teach your families. What do you think he's going to do with your children? He's ruthless. Those children are arrows to be shot into the face of who? The enemy. But don't think for a minute he's not going to, you know, there's a rule in politics. You don't mess with the opponent's kids, right? Satan has no rules. The only thing he has is the restraining hand of God, but he would use anything and everything at his disposal to destroy you and I, including our families. One of the biggest ways that he attacks men in the ministry. And as a preacher's kid, I've seen it firsthand. What my father went through for over 40 plus years in the ministry, he went after his family. Because if he could take his family, one of his sons stole from the church. How do you get in the pulpit Sunday morning after your son was caught stealing? How do you do that? That's how he works. He is ruthless. But it's also a reminder for us that with the rising tide of evil, things are not what they seem to be. Sometimes it looks like evil is winning and good is losing. We saw a a terrible, awful example of evil this week. Did we not? A shooting at a Christian school, six people murdered. While evil seems to, to advance and it seems to win, the work of the gospel continues. I was, uh, as a young man in my early teens, having a particularly difficult time. And I remember talking to my dad one time and he, he reminded me, he said, son, you're a child of God, recognize that Satan will do everything he can to destroy you, but don't give him more power than he has. He is a dog on a chain. And we had a dog that we called, his name was Bear. And he was on a chain tied to a tree and it was a long chain. And everywhere Bear went in his circle on that chain was Bear dirt. And if, if you were a visitor and you stepped inside that chain, he had a trick. And what he would do is he would come off the length of his chain. The dirt was a dead giveaway about his reach, though. And then he would charge. If you got inside the length of that chain, he'd get you. But Satan's just like that. He is a dog on a chain. He is limited. And sometimes we give him too much power and authority. He is a defeated foe. Lawlessness will be increased, however, 2 Timothy 3.12. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. Does that sound familiar at all? Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation. So the question for you this morning is, is God giving you what you need to engage in spiritual warfare? Has he? Say, yeah, he has. I sometimes leave my armor and my sword and my helmet on the sidelines so that I don't look like I'm going to war because I really don't I don't want to engage. Brothers and sisters, be reminded that whether we want to engage or not has no relevance to Satan's intent for you. 
But if you intend to make your life count, you're declaring war. Those are our options. We can sit here and kill time, bide our time and hope that we make it out unscathed, or we can pick up our armor, our weapons, which are mighty through God for the pulling down of strongholds. Lastly, this, I want to encourage you with this. What is our reason to rejoice? Satan is a defeated foe. Christ has given us authority to tread on him. Did that cause us to rejoice? What did Jesus tell his disciples when they came back and said, Lord, we can cast out demons. Even demons are subject to your name. Remember in Matthew chapter 7, when they were setting up all of their achievements to Jesus? What did, what was one of the things he said to them? They said to Jesus in, in, in elevating themselves, and Lord, we've done many wonderful works. We've even cast out demons in your name. And what did Jesus say? Depart from me. I never knew you. Our, our reason to rejoice is not that we have military superiority over the enemy because of the blood of the lamb. The reason for us to rejoice is that our names are written in heaven. That is the source of our joy. Because engage in warfare, we must. Engage in warfare, we will. And and get bloodied and beaten by it in many cases. But our, our source of joy is the fact that as saints of God, our names are written in the Lamb's book of life. That's the question for us this morning. Is your name written in heaven? Are you sealed by the indwelling Holy Spirit? Have you been washed in the blood of the Lamb? If you can answer yes to those things, then you have nothing to fear. But if not, what does Scripture say to those who are not? Woe, woe, woe. Woe to the hard-hearted who stiffen their necks against the command of the gospel to repent. Question is, have we obeyed that command? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for the reminder of, Lord, the skirmish lines that we try to avoid. Lord, we recognize that in many ways, times, and places, we have shirked our duty. We've pushed back from the front line in our own lives in many ways and cases. But Lord, you have called us to see from your perspective. And you've given us this passage this morning to consider that while Satan is carrying out judgment on the hard-hearted, the unrepentant, your enemies, Father, we are called to go behind enemy lines with the gospel and rescue your remnant. We ask for your help with that, Lord. Help us to see things for as they are. And in so doing, Lord, to be equipped and prepared with the armor of Christ. Thank you for the shed blood, which has cleansed us and washed us and grants us protection and safety as we engage. We ask that you would prepare this church for the days ahead, the months ahead that you would use us for your honor and glory, that you would sanctify for yourself, your bride. We ask these things in your name. Amen.